Hello and welcome to Cond, a podcast all about con artists, fraudsters and cheats. Episode 2, I'm Amy. And I'm Michael, hello. Uh, now, if you heard episode 1 last week about Victor Lustig, uh, he was very much a sort of cheeky, seeing what he could get away with, fly by the seat of his pants sort of criminal. Today's tale is much more sinister, so I'm just warning you of that from the outset. This is going to get quite dark. Today's con man is a grade A shit, so prepare yourself. However, before we do get too dark, uh, the slightly comical subject of the guy's name. Uh, Today's con man is a Scottish soldier called Gregor McGregor, which is literally the most Scottish name I've ever heard. Um, Short of being called like Wee Bonnie Scotty McDuff. I don't think you can get more Scottish than Gregor McGregor. Also, his family obviously didn't have that much imagination. No, I don't. <laughs> that is very true, yeah. Today we take you to the early 1800s when Gregor McGregor managed to invent a country, declared himself its emperor, sold land there that didn't exist, encouraged people to immigrate there and even floated it on the London Stock Exchange. This is the story of the totally made-up utopia of Poirier. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of this soldier's frankly ridiculous fraud, a little bit of background to the man. Gregor McGregor was born on Christmas Eve of 1786 in Glengyle, which is on the north shore of Loch Katrine in Stirlingshire in Scotland. And his family had close ties to the military. His grandfather, also called Gregor. Like you say, the family have got absolutely no imagination, have they? Their son is McGregor, and they've had, well, at least two offspring called Gregor, which is ridiculous. Anyway, Grandad Gregor served with distinction in the British Army. Uh, Gregor's father died when he was eight, so he and his two sisters were raised from then on by his mother Anne, with the help of various relatives. McGregor joined the British Army in 1803 at the age of 16, as soon as it was possible for him to do so. His enrolment coincided with the start of the Napoleonic Wars, so southern England was gearing up to prepare for a possible French invasion, and MacGregor, a member of the 57th West Middlesex Regiment of Foot Soldiers, was stationed in Kent. In less than a year, he had been promoted to lieutenant, a promotion which usually took three years or more. As lieutenant, he spent time in Guernsey and Gibraltar. Around this time, McGregor was introduced to Maria Bowater, who was a daughter of a deceased Royal Navy Admiral from a very wealthy family. Therefore, Maria had a considerable dowry. They married quickly, set up home in London. McGregor returned to the army and used his newfound wealth from his marriage to buy the position of captain for £900. Don't you think that's weird that at that time, servicemen could avoid waiting for a promotion and just pay? So, here's a tenner, give me a promotion. <laughs> I imagine it costs more than a tenner, but yeah, they basically bought their own positions in rank, which is ridiculous. Well, it costs £900, but still... He's done no work to get it, basically. He's just, just paid, yeah. Mm. In 1809, McGregor was stationed in Portugal for a year, where he had a pretty major falling out with his superior officer. Uh, Gregor requested discharge and retired from the army. He and his wife moved to Edinburgh and he assumed the title of Colonel. He wasn't a Colonel, he just started introducing himself as Hi, I'm Colonel Gregor McGregor. And nobody went, Are you a Colonel though? People just went along with it, weird. 
However, calling himself Colonel didn't really achieve the respect and social status that he was hoping for. So in 1811, he and his wife returned to London. Here, he knighted himself and started calling himself Sir Gregor McGregor. That guy has a massive ego. Yeah, that is all this is, his ego. Do you think he was really sure and had small man syndrome? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, I don't know. That is a classic case, isn't it? Uh, he also claimed that his family had ties to earls, dukes and barons. He didn't, but, you know, it was all about trying to create an air of respectability for the McGregor family in London. McGregor, it seems, is just one of those people that demanded social respect and nobility without really having any justification for it. In December of 1811, his wife Maria McGregor died. Not only did Gregor lose his wife, but he also lost his main source of income and the support of her influential family. Now, the passing of his wife didn't leave Gregor with many options, as if he quickly remarried and found himself another wife, uh, that would have caused considerable protests from his first wife's family and would also likely have led to social rejection from McGregor. Also, that row he'd had with his senior officer in the army made it difficult for him to now rejoin the army. However, a chance meeting he had in London did give him an idea. So he obviously wasn't that bothered about poor old Maria. Oh no, I don't I don't suspect he was that into her, but you know, she had deep pockets. It's suspected that whilst in London, McGregor met General Francisco de Miranda, a Venezuelan revolutionary who, most notably for McGregor, received much acclaim and respect amongst high society circles in London. At the time, Latin America was going through a huge political revolt. In fact, seven out of ten countries had declared themselves independent republics. McGregor was fascinated by the idea of these new utopian republic nations and figured if he could lead a similar revolution, he could return a hugely respected celebrity. So he wants to be rich and famous in London and his plan is, right, if I can lead a, a revolt in some far-flung land, I'll come back a hero. That's what he's thinking. So he decided to head to Venezuela. He sold his small Scottish estate that he had inherited and set sail in 1812. His military history, combined with his passion for liberation and independence, meant that he earned a position in the Venezuelan army fairly easily, and he very quickly had a very successful career there. He rose through the ranks in Venezuela to colonel, then brigadier general, and even became principal commander in the field. This was under Simon Bolivar, who was leader at the time, colloquially known as the Liberator as the years went on, McGregor showed considerable courage and leadership and was successful in many battles against the Spanish. This was McGregor's heyday. And with his successes in the field came the recognition and respect that he so desired. Uh, Simon Bolivar, the leader at the time, even personally awarded McGregor one of the highest accolades, the insignia of the Order of Liberatadors. And McGregor even married the Supreme Commander's niece. When battles in the region came to an end with the Spanish suffering defeat, McGregor was desperate for a fresh conquest. He was worried that the peace would cause the hype around him to die down, so he left Venezuela with a view to commanding other neighbouring regions. So basically, this guy loved the war. He loved war because he was quite good at it. And yeah, he's worried that if there's not a war going on, people aren't going to think he's some sort of hero. Do you not think he should have just learned to, uh, you know, play the piano? 
or did like X Factor? Not that they had that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think X Factor. If Love was... Island was here, you know, it, back that he'd in be there in a set yeah. of speedos, wouldn't he? Yeah. That is basically who this guy is. He wants fame, but he doesn't really want to have to do anything for it. He just wants to be famous. But he is quite committed, so you've got to give him that. Yeah, and he's yeah. obviously quite a good soldier. Yeah. Isn't he? Mm -hmm. To be fair to him. In the spring of 1820, McGregor, accompanied by a small army he had now recruited, landed in Nicaragua in a region known as the Mosquito Coast. This was a swampy, pest-ridden area of shoreline and jungle. So the name reflected the reality. Yeah, it, did. it had previously been an English colony until 1788, but was so desperately horrible and unlivable that the colony had withdrawn and the area had been mostly abandoned ever since. This land he settled upon is useless, horrible, and absolutely nobody wants to live there. But didn't put him off. He's like, I want to live there. Why? Who knows? So, Gregor McGregor set sail to return home to Britain with news of his newfound dominion and a dream for a wondrous empire with him as leader. So basically, he wanted to be a leader of the mozzie land yeah he's found this swamp and he's gonna put he's put his flag in the ground and gone right i'm king of this let's go and start a country that's what he's doing he's creative isn't he i guess you could say he's creative i mean that is probably the only compliment you can give him at this stage but okay yeah whilst en route to london he named his new country poyer and invented his title he decided he would be the cacique of Poirier, cacique being Latin American for chief. What happens next gets rapidly out of hand, and I can't work out how much of this he has planned and premeditated and how much of it is like a, like a snowball effect that basically just rolls away from him. So he's found a kingdom, he's named it, he's declared himself king, and all whilst on a boat for many weeks. So it's safe to say he knew what he was doing, right? This was premeditated. So he was off to London to get money and to find loyal subjects for his empire. Now, London at the time was actually a place where con artists could flourish. Two decades of war with Europe had left the nation exhausted. There was loads of poverty. People were ready to follow any promise of fortune or opportunity. Also, the news of McGregor's successes in the Central American Wars had made it back to Britain. So this, coupled with his, you know, charming, engaging personality, meant Londoners welcomed him and were fascinated by the tales he had to tell. McGregor told of the land of Poirier, a paradise which basked in an almost perpetual summer. He described the land as being so incredibly fertile that it could produce everything needed for sustenance without the need for hard labour. He described mountains lined with forests of redwood, mahogany and cedar. Poirier also had gold and lots of it. Riverbeds were filled with gold and the mountains were lined with it, ready for anyone with a pickaxe to find their fortune. Natural fields filled with sugar, coffee and cotton sprawled far and wide. Vast herds of livestock grazed on the land and the rarest fruits in the world grew in large quantities. So what I can't figure out, is this more like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or more like the Land of Oz? 
I think more the land of odds. It is very much the land of odds, isn't it? Except, I mean, that's what he's describing. Yeah, that's... this place is. It's this is heaven on earth, is what he's describing, which is quite a long way from the reality of this bit of land he's found. Again, creative. Yeah. Creative is right, yeah. McGregor also described the towns and settlements that he had created in his country. Near to the mouth of this gold-filled river, a bridge formed the centre of the Poye capital. Overlooking the coast of the Atlantic were streets of stately buildings. There was a royal palace, a parliament building, an opera house, and even a cathedral. People buy this. And yet, he's even telling them, he's only been there a few weeks. How he's had time to build palaces, cathedrals, parliaments, and they're just going, all right, yeah, cool, busy couple of weeks, was it, yeah. It's mental. He even talks of his stately processions around town, where he'd be accompanied by knights. And he even talks of his very own Poyasian army. I think his lie went a little bit far, if I'm honest, right? And I know he's trying to win people over, and I know he's trying to make up he's got this incredible country. But I think if I was going to make up a country, I'd have put a few flaws in it. Do you, do you know what I mean? Just to make it a bit believable, I think. Like I'd say, oh yeah, there's gold in the rivers, and the mountains are made of mahogany, and it's beautiful. Uh, the weather's not great. Like, it rains a bit, but uh, I can't have it all. Do you know what I mean? I put a, put a, the odd flaw in just to, just to make it believable, I think. I know, but he's living in a dream world, isn't he? He's creating a dream world, isn't he? Yeah. And I also, mean, he knows it's nonsense, but yeah. But also, he, like, if you say something so many times, you might just believe it. Do you think, so you think he's starting to believe himself? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, maybe. Maybe that's a bit far fetched. I don't know. But also, again, very creative. You're, you're a big fan of his creativity, aren't you? <laughs> he's more creative than me, anyway. But also, people are quite gullible, aren't they? Again, this is another story of people being very, very gullible. Yeah, and I think the context of the time as well, I think people wanted to believe this. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like London was poverty-stricken. And I think this story of, oh, there's this amazing place where everyone can be rich and you can just live off the land and not have to work. And it's summer all the time. I think this dream, actually, people go, God, that sounds great. Yeah, because reality was pretty Pretty shit. grim, pretty grim. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, news of Poirier travelled fast around Britain and very soon drawings and engravings of the country were everywhere. Also, in those days, it was nigh on impossible to draw a perfect map as it took so long to travel around the world. Therefore, it was quite easy to just stick Poirier somewhere next to the Atlantic and make it look incredible. McGregor began to sell land in Poirier. He opened an office in London and an office in Edinburgh where land was sold over the counter and people were queuing up. Land was sold for four shillings an acre. Then four shillings was around a day's wages. So it seemed reasonable to many and a good investment. A bit of a bargain. Yeah. If it was real. If it was real. A handbook was drawn up and given to buyers, offering advice to anyone purchasing land on Poirier. Do you know what this sounds like to me? This uh, this handbook of, oh, here's what life in Poirier is like. Do you know, did you, like, when I used to go on holiday with my mum and dad when I was a kid, we used to go to, like, caravan holidays. And whenever you arrive at the caravan park, they give you, a, like, a what's-on guide of, uh, you know, things to do in the week and what entertainment's on and what time the swimming pool opens and, you know, that sort of stuff. That sounds like what his handbook is. Do you know what I mean? Welcome to Poirier. Here's a, an idiot's guide. 
Yeah, or like um, the old version of what is it like the Time Out Guide? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, Leeds yeah. List. Yeah, he's just made, totally made it up, though, isn't he? Time Out Guide. Got a lot to thank this guy for. Well, he he made he the started. very first ever yeah. Time Out Guide. <laughs> McGregor toured round Britain to answer anyone's queries about Poirier. Get this. He had his very own choir. Of course he did. What a baller. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, people lapped it up. Uh, many people just couldn't wait to get to Poirier. And on the 10th of September, 1822, the first ship set sail with civilians bound for Poirier. 50 settlers were on board the ship. It was called the Honduras Packet, and it left from Leith in Scotland. Now, is a question about sailing. If anyone's listening who knows about sailing and is able to answer this for us, like, please get in touch. How did they know where they were going, right? I mean, they've, they've drawn this randomly on a map somewhere next to the Atlantic Ocean, and this ship is now setting sail for a place that doesn't exist. So it doesn't, you know, they're looking for something that doesn't exist. They're just aimlessly sailing into the Atlantic, hoping to stumble upon a country that doesn't exist. How do they know where they were going? Did he just point, they go, oh, it's roughly that way. Carry Go that way for, you know, three weeks and you'll come across it. Did they have a compass back then? When was the compass um, Yeah, I, they'd have had compasses. But my, my main concern is that it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> like, where, where are you navigating to? I mean, you've got a point, but these people thought it existed. Didn't yeah, they? So they, they, you know, they were hopeful. Most of the people on board the Honduras packet were the elderly who had embarked on Poirier for a blissful, quiet retirement. Um, my mum and dad keep talking about retiring to the coast. I imagine them like opening a little tea room in like Cornwall or something like that. To, and my dad would just sit there and read the paper every day. And that's all these people want. They just want a quiet life in the sun. They weren't told its nickname was, what, Mosquito Land? What was it? <laughs> the Mosquito Coast. That probably would have put them off if he'd have put that in the marketing material, wouldn't he? And many people on board were skilled workers and tradespeople who had closed down their businesses, said goodbye to friends and family, and were filled with optimism for a life of fulfilment in Poirier. When the ship set sail, thousands turned out to cheer and wave to the ship as it departed. It was draped in flags featuring a green cross, which had become the emblem for Poirier. I actually feel really bad for these people. It gets so much worse for them. I know, but, you know, my heartstrings, you know, pulling on them it already. Is, it is. This, I, I, quite I, bad. I, I They've given up their livelihood, haven't they? Everything. Everything. And they're setting sail for a place that doesn't exist. And yeah, this story gets so much worse. It is definitely like going to see the wizard, though, in Oz. It is literally like that, isn't it? This is the real Wizard of Oz. I wonder if any of them had red sparkly shoes. McGregor, the gent that he was, wanted to help travellers get settled as smoothly as possible. So before they departed, he kindly exchanged their Scottish coins and notes for banknotes from the Bank of Poirier. He had 70,000 banknotes printed in Edinburgh and was happy to exchange people's currency for them. This is just adding insult to injury, isn't it? He's already packing them off on a ship to a country that doesn't exist. And now, before they go, he's taking every last penny they own. And like literally giving them Monopoly money. It is. It's exactly that. And if you're interested, there is a picture of the Poirier dollar on Instagram. McGregor's deception had gathered such momentum that with other sailings being organised and needing funding, McGregor found himself short of cash. Therefore, he approached a major London bank. 
Perring and Company at number 72 Cornhill, requesting help in floating shares in Poirier on the London Stock Exchange. The Poirier immigration programme had such scale and pace and was being supported so widely throughout society that nobody even questioned at this stage that it may not exist at all. He is definitely believing this. You think he's believing his own lie at this stage? This is what I, this is what I meant when I said it's, it's snowballed. He's like caught onto a fantasy and he's just going he's further running and further. And, run, and it's getting bigger and more and more out of hand. This like is quite ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. Yeah. 2,000 bonds were offered at £100 each on October the 23rd, 1822, which resulted in £200,000 in sales, all secured on the resources of the land of Poirier. McGregor sold places in his military, the right to be shoemaker to the princess, a jeweller, teacher, clerk or other craftsman in his non-existent government and country. McGregor was very, very rich. So he sold stocks in the country, he sold positions of, you know, uh, he sold jobs and occupations to people saying, oh, you can be a teacher when you get there. So this isn't just a thing about the army, is it, then, like earlier when they said you can buy a position? You can literally buy a position in anything? Yeah, well, I mean, this is in his made-up country. So this is him going, oh, I'll let you be a teacher if you give me yes, 500 quid. Yes, but he's taught that principle from yes, being in the army, yeah, he, hasn't he? he has. He has, absolutely, yeah. Meanwhile, the Honduras packet had reached the Mosquito Coast. On the deck of the ship, travellers were dressed in their best gowns and tuxedos and the atmosphere on board was of jubilation. The ship dropped anchor and a cannon was fired to signal to port authorities to dispatch smaller mini-boats to carry people to shore. No boats arrived. The passengers found themselves close to a totally silent, uninhabited shoreline and they were baking in the heat of the equator. They assumed that Poirier must be nearby, so they began unloading their belongings, while some of the men set off in search of the city. Not long after that, another ship arrived, this one carrying 150 men, women and children, bringing the total number of Brits on the Mosquito Coast to 200. Within hours, and with roughly half of their belongings unloaded from the ships, a major hurricane then hit the coast and carried both ships out to sea, leaving the settlers stranded on the beach. I have no way of knowing what they must have felt like. And the only thing I have in my locker, like the only reference point I can use as, oh, it must have been a bit like that, is, have you seen Lost? Yeah, that's what I'm envisaging. It's like the first episode of Lost, where they wake up slightly dazed in a coma and then have to start a civilization. These people are living it and it's 1800. It's absolutely horrible. The migrants were stranded in the extreme heat of the Caribbean, without shelter, and with their baggage and furniture strewn around them, much of it even destroyed by the hurricane. They made themselves a makeshift camp, and teams set off along the coast in search of Poirier. It was the start of the rainy season, and without any sanitation or proper food, disease quickly spread amongst them, and most suffered from malaria or yellow fever. Within weeks of arriving, more than two-thirds of the travellers had died. News of their dire situation was eventually heard in Honduras, a British colony about 500 miles north, and Honduras quickly dispatched a ship to their rescue. 
In Belize, hospitals were set up to care for the sick and relays were organised to carry the migrants to Belize and Honduras. However, this was only the start. Many more ships were already on their way, carrying Brits to the Mosquito Coast. Authorities in Honduras sent ships out into the Atlantic to try and intercept the travellers and warn them before they disembarked. It became a major issue for Honduras too, trying to house and look after its sudden influx of visitors, who, let's not forget, had absolutely no money. It would also take over a year to organise repatriation for all the travellers. So what was McGregor up to whilst all this chaos was going on in Honduras, you ask? Well, he and his associates had quietly emigrated to France. What a dig. There is so many points in this story where I just think, you're a dick. Like, there's there's absolutely no excusing any of his behaviour. At, at points when I was, like, reading the story, I was thinking, do you think he's just a bit stupid and didn't quite realise that he was basically sending people off to their grave? But then I'm now starting to think, because that kind of wasn't initially in his plan. He just wants to be rich and he wants everyone to love him. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But then this kind of doesn't seem to be in his plan. I'd love to know like kind of what led him to emigrate to France. I didn't all of a sudden he thought, actually, shit, I have gone too far. Mm. Or was he not that clued on? Because he does seem like he's quite clever. Like he doesn't seem like yeah, and he's but he, as the ship sailed, he obviously had no conscience. At no point did he speak up and go, "Oh, actually, this lie's got a bit of our hand." Sorry, guys. And also, he did take all their money. All their money, yeah. So I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't. I mean, I want him to be a good guy. Like he's not. He, he's a dick. No. So McGregor was now in Paris, and guess what he was doing there? He was telling everyone about this incredible land he was king of called Poyer and he was setting up offices in Paris selling the opportunity to move there. In September of 1825 the first ship set sail from Le Havre in northern France bound for Poyer. Whilst in Paris he also managed to communicate with banks back in London to release another £300,000 of Poyerian stocks secured on the revenues of gold mines in Poyer. So the news of what's going on in Honduras hasn't got back yet. He's I think, exhausted Britain. Everyone in Britain who wants to go is gone. And now he's gone to France and he's doing the same thing again. Selling more ridiculous holidays to a country that doesn't exist. So this actually wouldn't happen in this day and age, would it? Like now with like social media and all that. Like it just wouldn't happen. Yeah, well, so much of it wouldn't happen. Like the fact that... You just... I mean, you couldn't invent the country because the world's been properly mapped now. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, there's, there's, so, there's so much about this story that wouldn't work in 2018. <laughs> all right, all right, pal. McGregor stayed in Paris till 1827 when he returned to London. By now, news of his deception had made it back to Britain and when he arrived, he was promptly arrested. However, unbelievably, the case against him was dropped and he was set free. What on earth? Why is not totally clear, but it looks like a case of friends in high places helping him out. Following this, he returned back to France and lived quietly for many years on the remainder of his ill-gotten gains. 
However, his lavish lifestyle of royal banquets, combined with the many other people who had shared in his spoils, meant he didn't actually have much money left. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I So I assume the nobility that came with his light has earned him friends in the judiciary or whatever. They just released him. By 1839, the bubble had well and truly burst for McGregor, and he was basically living in hiding without any friends or money. At this point, he got in contact with the government of Venezuela and requested that he be reinstated to his former military rank. Remember earlier when he went out to Venezuela and did quite well as leading battles in Venezuela and throughout Latin America, he, did, he was good at that. So he cited his huge successes in the previous battles for independence, and he still had friends in high places in Venezuela, so his request was granted. He swiftly set sail for Venezuela and was reinstated as General of Division. In Venezuela, he was awarded a full and generous military pension. So that was it. So he went and saw out the rest of his days quite happily in Venezuela. So we had like a few years of, you know, not having that many pennies. He, lived, then that was he about... lived in hiding for a bit. And then he thought, sod this, I'll go to Venezuela where they like me. And he went there and... and lived happily ever after i really wanted to find a moral in this story because he has ruined so many people's lives people died and i really wanted to find some sort of moral but there isn't any he got away with it he lived happily ever after and was it ever um kind of released how many people actually died is that known i couldn't find an exact number but we well i mean the first few ships there was 200 people and two-thirds of those died so we're talking you know uh, yeah in the hundreds the number of people who died and you wonder what happened to the people who survived. Like, did they get to go back to... A, a lot of them will have been repatriated. Yeah. So, so they went back to Britain. And I mean, that is a story to tell the grandkids, isn't it? I don't know if it's a good story, but it's definitely, you know, one that would be quite shocking. Yeah, he did all this and he got away with it. I'm sorry to report he got away with it. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of Cond. Uh, that was the story of Poye, a fantastic land never actually existed. Uh, if you have enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe. Uh, or if you have time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be fantastic as well. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We're at Condcast. Till next time. See ya. See ya.